1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we, uh, a couple of weeks ago we looked at Hannah's prayer. We won't be covering that again tonight, but I would like to read verses 12 through the end of the chapter and just kind of read it in context, and then we'll go back and we'll begin in verse 18 as we look at Samuel's childhood ministry. So let's just pick up right here at verse 12 within the chapter. And again, this is after Hannah uh, prays to the Lord and after the Lord gives her a child. And so she, uh, this is really a, an act uh, of worship to her. She is uh, overwhelmed, obviously, by the gift of a son, which she'd been praying for because she was barren for so many years. And remember, Elkanah had two wives, Penina and Hannah. Hannah was barren, but Penina was um, very prolific, and she was having children left and right. And Penina was rubbing it in the nose of Hannah and just making her feel even worse. Uh, and as you remember, uh, being barren in that culture, it was a sign of God's chastening you or somehow, you know, God's judgment of you. It wasn't a good thing to be, to be a woman in those days um, and being barren. And so Penina knew this and was constantly rubbing Hannah's nose in it and to, to, the, to the point where Hannah began to even stop eating and was in such pain inside and distraught and brokenness. And uh, if you've ever had a, a deep pain in your life where you, you really didn't care about eating, you know, have you ever been that despondent about something? Maybe it was someone in your life that you lost, you know, something significant in your life happened. It just, it brought you right to a screeching halt and it just brought you to your knees, crushing blows. You, you understand. And so that's kind of where she was at. But the Lord provided for her to have a child and she dedicated Samuel, that first child of hers, back to the Lord and so, but, and then she brought him up to Shiloh, which if you remember in Joshua chapter 18, when the children of Israel were coming through the uh, promised land or, or going on their way to the promised land, I'm sorry, in their desert wanderings, um, it says in Joshua 18 that finally they, they set up the tabernacle in Shiloh and it was in Joshua 18 where they finally just kind of said, you know, this is where it's going to be. And it, it was there for quite a long time. And this is where Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were ministering, probably with other priests, perhaps. Um, and this is where the children of Israel will come up every year, sometimes two or three times a year, and they would worship the Lord there. And Hannah brings her firstborn son. She basically lends him to the Lord. She, said, she made the promise that, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you all the days of his life, and he'll be... He'll take the Nazarite vow. In other words, he won't drink any, anything or eat anything with grapes. He won't drink wine or grape juice. He won't cut his hair. He won't touch the dead, those kinds of things. He'll be, have a life that's consecrated to the Lord. And, and so she put that vow upon him, and that's the way he lived for the rest of, her, of his life. So she brings him up there, but there's, right about this time, the mood changes. Everything seems happy and joyful. She's got a son. She's taken him up, fulfilling her vow. And then we strike a minor chord because we read of what is in verse 12. And let's read that. And we're going to read from here down to the rest of the chapter. It says, now the sons of Eli, Eli, again, was the high priest there at the time. 
Now, the sons of Eli were corrupt. They were literally sons of Belial, uh, the King James, if you have that. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. And then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot. And the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. And so they did in Shiloh to, and so they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there and also before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the men who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. And he would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Sounds like some really great spiritually good spiritual men. If you don't give it, if you don't give it volitionally, we're just going to take it by force. Wow, what awesome guys. Therefore, the sin of the men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Never get in the way of somebody's worship of the Lord. You know, that, that was what we looked at last week, among other things. But, you know, never get in the way of somebody's worship of the Lord. You know, and even when we gather together like this, you know, even when we worship and singing, we know worship is just one facet of worship. And sometimes it's not all that great of a sacrifice, you know. Sometimes you're in a good mood and you come in and, you know, the Lord doesn't have a problem with that, you know. Some forms of worship, especially singing, is usually pretty easy, except when you're not having a good day. And all of you have had bad days. And you come in from work, you come in from wherever you're coming in from, and you sit down here and maybe you've just hurried and got through dinner quickly. Maybe you've had a really tough day, and now you're singing. And in your heart, you're just like, you know what, Lord? I, I, don't, I just want to sit and listen to the, the word being taught. I don't, I don't even want to open my mouth. I just don't, I don't even want to sing. And it is a sacrifice of praise, isn't it? When we finally get out of ourselves and, you know, about the second or third song, your heart starts to open up. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to sing to you. And, you know, that's a real sweet sound to the Lord when you do that. Trust me. I think sometimes it takes a couple of songs for us to kind of get into a place where we can finally open up and worship the Lord. And, you know, it's a good thing. And, and let your heart go there. Get, try to get a, out of yourself as much as possible because the more you dwell on the things of your own life and, and the things that are maybe dragging you down that day, the worse off you're going to be. The, the secret, I think, to our Christian life is to, uh, as much as possible, get out of ourselves. Don't think about yourself too much. Sometimes the best thing to do when you're really roiling with pain and agony, you know, certainly go to the Lord and cry. You know, get on your knees and, 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 and cry. You know, some people don't think they can do that, but, you know, that's, a, that's worship. You're bringing your heart before him, all your feelings. There's nothing he can't take. I mean, you can be as dreadfully honest and painful as you want with the Lord. He can take it. He's got really big shoulders. There's nothing you can tell him that's going to scare him. After all, doesn't he know all things anyway? He does. He's omniscient. You can't fool him, so you might as well just come out with it. Tell him everything that's on your, on your heart. And you know, when you do that, it honors him, and it blesses his heart to hear from his child that he already knows what's going on, but the fellowship that that brings him in with you is priceless. And you are going to have a connection that you can't quite understand, but it's going to affect you, I promise you. And it's going to open you up even more and more. So I want to encourage you to do that. But never get in the way of people's worship. Whatever it may be, in, in money, in singing, in service, whatever it may be, it's important. But notice here in verse 18, 
The, the contrast now, we'll finish the end of the chapter here, but Samuel, but Samuel, underline but Samuel, because that's meant to be, uh, to draw a contrast with what we have already read. These men were evil, they were doing wicked things, and unfortunately we're going to hear more about them. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, notice what Eli, this compromised priest, would say. The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. And then they will go to their own home. And notice, and the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. The woman that was barren now, after she had followed through with her act of worship, giving the very thing that was most important to her, she gave it to the Lord for his service. And also, by the way, to be hopefully an encouragement and a witness to Eli's sons, who were wicked men. And this is a young boy. He's probably five years old, and these guys are probably teens or older, right? In their 20s, late teens, early 20s, perhaps. And so Eli said, um, and, then they would go, and then the Lord visited Hannah, and, and notice what the Lord does as a result of that. He, she conceives, and she bears three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, And I love this. Meanwhile, while all this is happening, while she's just having child after child, probably every year she's having a child. Who knows? Maybe she had triplets. Maybe she had uh, twins the next time. We don't really know. Maybe she had quintuplets. That'd be interesting. Don't really know. But meanwhile, while all this is happening, Samuel's up there in Shiloh. He's actually about 20, 25 miles south from Ramah. He's down there, and he is ministering to the Lord. And meanwhile, their parents, about 20, 25 miles to the north, up in the mountain regions of Ephraim, they're up there. And can you imagine what's going through Hannah's mind? Every single day she's praying for her son, wondering how he's doing. You know, that's a long trip. Even 25, 20 to 25 miles, you can't take that lightly because the terrain was very treacherous. It wasn't easy. And depending on the weather, you know, there's Rainy seasons, there's uh, wadis, they call them, flash floods. These kinds of things happen even today. And so it wasn't uh, an easy thing just to, you know, hop in the car and, and drive down and see him for the day, have lunch with him, and then come back home. You know, it was, a, it was a bigger deal than that. So now Eli, verse 22, was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the people, the Lord's people, to transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. There's an interesting phrase. The Lord desired to kill them. Boy, news at 11. And the children and the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with Lord and men. With the Lord and men. And then, and then a man of God, we don't even know who this is, unnamed servant, came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord. That's never a good sign. When you have uh, somebody come up to you and says, thus says the Lord, you better go run. 
<laughs> or just stand and listen and just take it on the chin. He says, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all of the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house, and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house for Ever. But any of your men who I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please, put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. So here we have these, uh, these young men whose sin had become very great. And because Eli, the father, did nothing to dissuade them, and because they weren't listening, especially the father, the father wasn't listening. He's the head. He's supposed to be the one. And God was probably trying to speak to the sons. They wouldn't listen. So he goes to the father. The father is not listening. And know this, that if we're not listening to the Lord, sometimes the Lord can and does bring others to us to tell us things that we need to hear. Now, you have to be very careful. If you're that person who is sent to somebody, you'd better make sure that it's from the Lord you better be in prayer for your own heart, especially if it's something hard to say. Make sure you have the heart of God before you go to somebody and be in prayer about it. Be broken before you go. And you know what? When you are, they will receive it in such a way where they'll know that you're doing it really out of a heart of love and compassion. You're not coming just to judge them. Do you know the difference? When somebody comes to you and they're just wanting to just, you know what, the Lord told me that because of what you did, you know, and they're just, they're just leveling you and you're just like hamburger, you know. And then somebody comes up and says, you know what, I need to, when you have time, I'd like to speak to you just for a little while. Can I come speak to you? When it's, let me know when is the right time and maybe we can talk. And then you talk with them and you, you pray with them and you, you, you assure them of your love for them, your care for them. And I tell you what, when you, the candor in which you do it and the spirit in which you do it changes everything. And it could change, the, it could be the difference between whether that person becomes softened and changes or hardened and angry. And it all has to do with us, the person who is sent. And so this is what happens. Let's go back to verse 18. Notice the difference here. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, um, 
but Samuel. You know, I said underline that because there is a difference. There's, they're supposed to be drawing a contrast again between these sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, with Samuel. Some think that only the smart and the wise and the professional can serve the Lord, but here it explicitly states that Samuel ministered to the Lord as an adult, no, as a child. As a child. Are you serving the Lord with your kids? Or are you encouraging them to serve the Lord, even at a young age? And there's very simple ways you can do that, you know, even here in the church. You know, after a church service, there's always things to do. There's always things to be picked up. There's always toilets to clean, always vacuum, you know, floors that need to be vacuumed, windows that need to be cleaned. And, you know, think about that. And we also have other ministries like the Father's Heart where, you know, Russ Loria, he encourages people to come out, Christians to come out. As they minister to people and give them food, there's always the gospel to be shared. Sometimes it's just sitting and listening and being an ear to somebody who has, you want, they, they have a story to tell and, they, you know, they don't need to necessarily be preached at that day. Maybe you just need to be an ear that somebody can, you know, speak to you. Maybe you should speak something. Maybe you shouldn't. You'd be led by the Spirit. Your kids, they can help. They can hand out the plates. There's little, little jobs that they can do. And all these things are important. And we have to set the example. But notice he was a child. Even a child could serve in the tabernacle that was set up there in Shiloh. I'm sure he started off with little small tasks, you know. Maybe Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, maybe he would just run and grab a couple things of wood, you know, for the, for the altar. You know, maybe his job would just be to grab the wood and bring it in. You know, whatever his job was, it was age appropriate for him. He could do it. And I'm sure he got such a charge out of serving the Lord. And, and hopefully Eli and those two men were encouraging him at that age and saying, hey, man, that's great. You know, thank you. This is why it's important, because people are coming, and what you bring is important. You've got to bring the fire. There's sacrifices, things of worship that need to go on here. And so, and notice that he, he wore a linen ephod. Remember that Samuel was a Levite. Her, his parents, Elkanah and his mother, Hannah, were Levites. They were from the tribe of Levi. So Samuel was a Levite, and he wore a linen ephod. And in Exodus chapter 28, it really lays out the different garments and the different articles of clothing that not only the high priest would wear, but also the other priests. And I love what it says there in verse 19. It says, moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe. And that literally is a tunic. And if you read in um, uh, Exodus 28, uh, beginning in verse 40, we won't go there, but um, it talks about the, the, the design of the tunic. And it's basically a sleeveless garment that reached uh, from up here, and it would be sleeveless, down to his knees, and it would go under the ephod. So the ephod would come over the top of it. And so as he would grow, can you imagine his mother? You know how kids grow? He's five years old, probably. We don't know how old he is at this point. Very young. And his mother... Every year when she would come to make that trip to Shiloh, she would bring a little bit larger size. You know, maybe started off with a 2.5. Next year, she brings a 3.5. The year after that, she brings a 5, then a 7, then a 9, and then a 12. And every year she comes and she gives him this new thing. And can you imagine the joy in her heart as she's sewing that thing and she's thinking about him? So 
So year by year, she, when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, she would bring up this. And Eli, notice verse 20, would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. And then they would go down to their home. Notice, even in his compromise, this man, this Eli, this priest, that he prayed to God and God answered. God answered his prayer. We'll see that in the very next verse. We've already read it, but in verse 21, it tells us what it is. But we'll wait until we get there. You remember what it was. But notice, this is not the first time, but this is actually the second time that this compromised high priest said something to Hannah that God had answered. This is the second time that God had answered Eli's prayer, even in his own compromise. The first time was when, in, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 1, uh, verse 17, remember when Hannah was heartbroken before she had Samuel, she went into the tabernacle and she's just pouring her heart out and she's moving her lips and Eli makes a wrong judgment of her, thinking that she was drunk. And, and basically she says, you know, I'm, I'm a woman of sorrow. You know, I, I've been praying something for the Lord. And notice what Eli says to her, and this is his prayer for her. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And that's exactly what happened. God did answer the prayer. Isn't that a mystery? I find that a mystery. I find it a mystery how somebody could be a television evangelist and completely... Um, void of God and just in it for the money <laughs> and, and maybe even living a dual life and, and this happens and yet millions of people are on television watching them and there's a little elderly woman in uh, you know, some little small town in Wyoming she's watching the program and she gets saved <laughs> isn't it amazing? God can use anything He'd much rather use a priest that is sold out to him, a man of God who has integrity with God and his heart is right with God. He would certainly rather use that, but God's arm is not shortened. It's not lax. He can do anything. But notice, in verse 20, he says, The Lord give you descendants. He said that to Elkanah and his wife and Hannah. The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that she was given to the Lord. And I can almost hear in Eli's voice the, not only the gratitude, but also the regret. And you may be wondering, what do you mean, regret? Well, his own sons were completely gone away from the Lord. They were doing horrible, wicked, wicked things. And can you imagine as Eli is seeing this young boy, just a heart full of God, and just wanting to serve him very simply and very devoutly, and for him to look at that little guy and be thinking about, man, I wish my sons were like that. When they started off like that, why didn't I teach them better? I see something in this young man that my son should have been. And can you imagine the regret? I can almost hear that in his voice as he's saying, the Lord give your descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. The loan because he knew how valuable it was and how valuable this little young life was to them. I imagine young Samuel was being more of a witness to these, these men who have been in the ministry for a long time. And sometimes it takes that. Sometimes it takes somebody who is uns untrained and unschooled and doesn't know anything at all to come and confound the wise, to come and confound the professionals. And that's why we always have to be in a place of humility and brokenness when we serve the Lord. 
and not get too big for our britches. And you know, that kind of leads me to encourage you to give your kids, give to your spouse, give to your family everything that you have. Give them everything. Don't let a wasted time go, go by. Don't live a life of regret. So many people, you know, like Eli, perhaps as he was looking at young Samuel, having many regrets as he watched him grow and perhaps learn a few things and was now seeing him as sort of like a grandson. And you know, there's nothing worse than having regrets. I have regrets over the way I've even raised my daughter. She's 13 now. And if I could go back, I would change things. And all of us would probably say, I I probably would too. Different things we should have done better. But live a life of no regrets. And you can start tonight. Don't wait till tomorrow. Start tonight. Live life to the fullest. Do everything purposeful. Don't just coast through life. Be purposeful in what you do. Be purposeful in the people that you love. Show your love to those that you love. Show it to them. Tell them daily. Prove it by actions. Guys, prove it to your wives over and over again. Try to win her heart like you were when you first were courting her in the very beginning. Remember that? You would do anything for her. But now after 20-some years, you're not so much willing to do those things. Rediscover that, that flame in your heart. And even if you don't feel it, do it anyway. And watch the response of your spouse when you do those things that you never, you just kind of gotten lazy, right? A relationship is worth investing in. And it is an investment. When we're no longer, no longer investing, we are becoming, we're going in reverse. And it's only a matter of time before compromise comes in. The secretary starts commenting you on how, how good you look. And the guy across the street mowing the grass is without a shirt. He's looking pretty good. All of a sudden, things start going through your mind, and you're like, I haven't thought about that in a while. And the devil goes, you know, you're still pretty young. What's wrong with it? But give everything. Give it all you've got. Love those you love. And notice verse 21, it says, The Lord visited Hannah. So here is the answer to Eli's prayer. So she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. And now in verse 22, it gets into this prophecy about Eli's household. It says, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all of Israel and how they lay with the women. Yes, they were having sexual intercourse with women who had come to worship the Lord in Shiloh. Can you imagine anything more heinous? than that, you know, to to be in a place of of leadership, and instead of doing the right thing and honoring God and, and doing these things, you're actually doing these wicked things. And notice how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, this was a very cultic sin that the Canaanites were guilty of. This is one of the sins that God had wiped out the Canaanites. Remember those seven nations that the children of Israel were going to dispossess. And God told them in the beginning, and some of you may not understand this, and so, you know, you just have to understand when God's says he gave them a lot of time to repent, the Canaanites, these seven nations. There came a point because of hundreds of years of their idolatry and their wickedness, God says, enough's enough. And he brought his own people in to to that land. He said, destroy everything. 
Man, woman, child, every single thing. Destroy it all. Why? Because of their wickedness. I don't even want one person to survive because they know the wicked things that they have done and they've been doing it for a long, long time and I don't want you to learn their wicked practices. Is that what really happened? No, they went in and they did a half-baked job and now they were indwelling and intermarrying with those Canaanites that they should have wiped out to begin with because God wanted to start clean with them. He wanted to give them a law and to, and to, uh, to reveal himself in and through them. And for them to be a holy nation. But it was an occultic thing that they were involved in. They, would, they learned this from the Canaanites that were still in the land. And now they're having intercourse with these women right there at the tabernacle. And you know what? Sexual sin is a great tool that the enemy of our soul uses against men and women. And especially men in ministry. It's unfortunate, but it's like every year I hear of some big pastor out west or somewhere locally that gets caught in some kind of sin. Folks, pray for your leaders. Pray for your pastors. They have a big bullseye. When I was a Christian, I, I still am, by the way, but um, when, I, <laughs> when I was new in the Lord, the bullseye on me was that big. And as I became you know, involved in, in worship here for 23 years, the bullseye got a little bit bigger. And now I'm the senior pastor, the bullseye is much bigger. And the devil wants nothing more than to take me down because he knows that if he can, that he discourages most of you. Now, hopefully you're not looking at me too much. Hopefully you're looking to Jesus. That's always the healthy thing to do. But there are pastors who fall into sin and the whole congregation is wiped out. And some of those young Christians, they just fall away. They put their trust in the pastor rather than putting their trust in the Lord. That's lesson number one. Never put your trust in the pastor. I hope you can trust me, but pray for me and Pastor Richard and Pastor David and Pastor Kevin. Pray for us that we would live lives holy and blameless before the Lord in everything, in our conduct, our speech, everything. Even in our thought life, the things that none of you can see. May that be the truth, and I hope that it is. But these men were involved in this, and the devil uses this tool all the time. And he uses it because it works most of the time. He doesn't pull out a new tool from his tool belt. He doesn't need to. He's got some well-worn tools in his little bag around his waist. And he's like, these three usually get most people. Drugs, sex, money. Doesn't have to use much else. Pride. He's got four of them in his tool bag, and they're very well-worn. His hand has opened them, and they've got all the, everything is so smooth on the tool because he's been using it so much, so much, every generation, every generation, doing the same stupid thing. Fathers, grandfathers, sons, grandsons, they keep doing the same thing. He keeps handing out the same tool, and everyone just falling, falling, falling. Do you, do you ever get sick of it? Guys, do you ever get sick of it? A feeling like just being bludgeoned over the head by the same stupid thing? You know, some, at one point, I, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, Lord, I know that this is a spiritual thing, but help me not to be that way. <laughs> Get through this thick head. Help me to think about what is happening. Ladies, and whatever it is that, that drives you, whatever sin that may be of yours, it could be bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. It could be a lust for things, you know, clothing, a house, security, 
Maybe a man who really loves you and treats you the way you should. And that's a good thing, but sometimes that can be an idol, can it? You know, and it's like these things are tools that the devil uses. And he certainly used it with these men, and they fell for it. And um, men, if you have a penchant for sex or for porn, it's only a matter of time before the devil sets you up. And he creates the perfect storm, and he destroys you. Or he destroys your marriage, destroys your job, or your ministry. If those things are alive in you, you have to confess them to the Lord, and you have to get it right. I've never before in my life seen so much of this in the church as it is right now. And for the things that I know, I know that that's just the tip of the iceberg. And it breaks my heart. And if it breaks my heart, I can't imagine how it breaks the Lord's heart. I've had men come to me, you know, just these, these issues. <laughs> Some wives are about ready to throw them out. Been dealing with this for years. He hasn't turned. Why? He's on the verge of being thrown out. His kids, his wife. And is it worth it? Is it really worth it? It isn't worth it. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves whenever we're tempted. Whenever you're tempted with any sin, guys, ladies, ask yourself, is it, is it really worth it? It really is not worth it. Even if you've lost all of your fear of God, even if you have no concern about the sin that offends God, and you're willing to destroy your, you know, are you willing to destroy your life, your family, your marriage? What you've worked so hard to, to build up, is it worth it? It reminds me of, in Leviticus 10, you recall a couple of the sons of Aaron. Remember, Aaron had four sons, Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar. And Nadab and Abihu, God killed them. They were in the temple. They were Levites, and they were to bring incense before the Lord. And can you imagine, year after year, day after day, week after week, they're doing the same exact thing, and I know exactly what that's about, because in this fellowship, I've had the joy of serving for over 25 years. And I remember mopping the floor when nobody was here. I remember doing all those things daily, daily, weekly, weekly. And then there comes a point where you're just like, what am I doing this for? Who am I doing it for? Because if, it, if it's for any, if it's for Jeff, who I love dearly as a father to me, there comes a point when the monotony of it gets to be so much that it's like, you know what? I can't do it for him anymore. I can't do it for a human being. And I remember I came to that conclusion one day. I'll never forget it. I was out there mopping the fellowship hall floor when we had the school here. And I was really busy when the school was here. We were all very busy. And all I wanted to do was just worship the Lord. I wanted to spend more time learning songs. And I remember just breaking down in the middle out there. And I was out there by myself. All the kids were in their classrooms. Nobody saw me. And I came to that decision, that crisis point, where I'm like, you know what, God? I know you've wanted me to do, you've called me here for a reason. And I'm very happy to do this. But it was just one of those moments where I had to really ask myself the question, who am I doing this for? And that was a great question. And I had to come to the decision, I can't do this for Jeff. I thought I was doing it for the Lord all the time. But you know how your heart can deceive you. 
some people you admire and you'll do anything for them until things get monotonous and year after year after year after year and you get into the 10th, 15th year and you're like, is this ever going to change, you know? And it's a wrong heart. But I had to come to that conclusion. Who am I doing it for? And then once the Lord really convinced me, he's like, Rob, you do it for me from now on. Don't think about Jeff or anybody else. This is between you and me. Can you do it for me? And with a smile. And I'm like, But notice in verse 23, he said to them, notice his sons, he says to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. You know, if these two men had sterling characters, they would have been encouraging to holiness everyone that was coming. But no, they were the ones that were the instigators. They were the ones that were the, the, the initiators of this sin. They should have been examples, but yet they were instigators of this sin. They were hypocrites. They were play actors. They might as well have had the Greek masks on. Behind their face, they're all feeling down and blue, but they got this this little mask that has the smiley face and it looks really cute and they can, you know, but deep inside they're dead men's bones, but they got this facade where everything looks all right, but they're really not okay. That's the way they were. These men were hypocrites. They were play actors. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 says, do not be deceived. Evil communication corrupts good habits. It corrupts good habits. Who are you hanging out with? What kind of habits are you picking up? What kind of habits are you promoting by your life choices, by your lifestyle, by the things you say, by the way you hold yourself, by the way you even dress? What are you saying to everyone else around you? These are things to consider. Notice, nevertheless, well, actually verse 25, if one man sins against another, God will judge him, Eli tells his sons. But if a man sins against the Lord, then who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, notice this, the men did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. They didn't listen to the voice of their father, and the implication is is that he did nothing to dissuade them from this, and there appears to be no consequence for their behavior. No consequences. Just a bunch of smoke Oh, it's really not good, guys, what I hear. It's, it's not good. But run along. No consequence. No telling him, son, take off the garments right now and hit the bricks. I don't want to see you for three days. <laughs> Go somewhere out in the desert where there's lions and bears, and then in three days come back if you're still alive. See, that's what a, I'm only kidding here, but, you know, a tough father might say something like that. And the kid's like, oh, my gosh, I'll never do that again. You know, and that's really what should happen. Put the fear of God in him, right? But we don't see Eli doing anything. Oh, it's not a good thing I hear, but, you know, it's, it's okay. I mean, after all, I'm only human, flesh and blood, a man. Really? No. They didn't listen to their father. Basically a slap on the wrist. No consequence or censor at all. These men more than likely grew up knowing that their father wouldn't follow through because he hadn't so far. Here they are probably in their mid-20s or early, you know, late teens. And here's dad telling us again to stop doing that thing, you know. What are we going to do? He'll get over it. It's probably just what he ate last night. They continue on their merry old way. 
Eli's words were empty. They were, he was like a cloud without rain. Cloud's supposed to give something, right? When you see a dark cloud, it's supposed to water the earth. Eli was that dark cloud, but he didn't give nourishment. He was just a dried up vessel himself. And it's important that we discipline our children, teach them the right things, the word of God, because if we don't, then we have a generation of spoiled, disobedient reprobates. And the world is filled with them right now because parents aren't telling their children. They're not taking them to church anymore. You know who's forming their opinion and giving them their worldview is the schools, teaching them all about you know, uh, planet Earth and Mother Earth. You know, you got to take care of Mother Earth. There's nothing wrong with being a good steward of those things, but they make a religion of it. Take care of Mother Earth and she'll take care of you. Just embrace the light that's within. Focus on a word. Put your fingers together. Focus on your navel and hum this syllable with me. Or they feed them the theory of evolution that they're now calling fact. Last I knew it was still a theory, but they're treating it as fact. They're teaching it as fact. There are no other alternatives to their pet, their baby that they coddle so well. They feed with the bottle evolution, their little baby that they love so much, their little darling. They will pay the price if they don't repent. Every school every university, those men and women, if they do not repent, will stand before the Lord and he will say, I never, ever knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And they will be cast into a lake of fire forever. They will burn. That is the reality. In Proverbs 22, verse 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is the purpose of sharing the truth and telling them the life. Don't be afraid to tell your kids real-life things. Teach them the word and put flesh on it. Tell them how it affected your life. The things that you didn't do that you should have done. The things that the word of God tells you that you should have done that you didn't do, but now you know the, the real truth of it, and you're like, this is why it's the truth. Now I understand. Isn't it wonderful when the light bulb goes off, when you read the Bible and all of a sudden the truth of it, maybe as an adult, it finally just rocks your cage and you're like, God was right all along. Of course he was. He loves you. Do you think he's going to leave you on the planet without an instruction manual about who he is, who you are, and the great gulf that there is in between, and the only ray of salvation, and that's Jesus Christ, whom this is all about. Low in the volume of the book, Jesus said, it's written of me, right? Every page. Because if we don't do those things that Eli didn't, if, if, we, if we do those things, or if we don't do the things that Eli didn't do either, we will come into a place like it says in Judges chapter 2 and verse 7. Let me read it to you. And it says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and this is before they came into the promised land, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance. And then in verse 10, I'll just get right to it. It says, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, in other words, that they had died, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Why is that? A generation grew up that didn't know because their parents never told them. 
They never took them to church. They just got busy at their jobs, both parents working full bore so they can own a $250,000 house with 3.1 kids and two cars in the parking, you know, in the driveway, and having all the toys and having all the things, but, and then not knowing your children and sending them off into a, uh, a place where they're fed a bunch of lies. Not everything, of course. But the worldview of the public schools, folks, is not a worldview that's represented here. If you're sending your kid to a public school, you better be talking to them a lot, getting in the word with them. Don't just assume that they're getting it from somewhere else because they will not. They will not get it from anywhere else. Even in a Christian school is the only possibility Notice it says in the last part of that verse that the Lord desired to kill them. Now, this is a hard thing to consider, but we have to understand that there's a line that we can cross as people, and it's only known by the Lord when we, he must bring judgment and when there is the proverbial Rubicon, when we cross that, that line, and it's different for everybody. I wish it were the same for everybody because then everybody would be well-warned. I'm getting close to that line. I better back up. We don't know, you don't know where that line is for you. It's different for every person. I've seen people get away with certain things for years, and then somebody who is younger in the Lord gets away with it for a week, and they get busted. And you got an older guy who you're thinking, that guy should have gotten busted, and he's getting away with it for years. Nobody knows. And isn't that a marvelous, scary thing? That leads me to believe that God, for some reason, gave him a lot of rope. And someone else, their rope is not so long. And he gives you enough rope to do your own thing. And there comes a point where he says, okay, enough is enough. I have to expose this. If you're not going to turn from that sin, I know in your heart you know better. Some people just don't know better. For what, It's a mystery that I won't chase. But there comes a point when God has to draw the line. And it's even, uh, even nationally. You remember when uh, Israel was being taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And God called Jeremiah to tell them and warn them uh, that they were going to go into captivity. And they did go into captivity. And in, Je- in Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, you know, Jeremiah is there praying for the people. Oh, Lord, open their hearts, open their minds, help them to turn from their idolatry. And he's praying to the Lord. And in verse 16 of Jeremiah 7, the Lord says to him, Therefore, do not pray for this people. What? But Paul tells me that I should always pray. Pray without ceasing. No, don't just stop praying. Nor lift up a cry or pray for them. Nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. They've crossed the Rubicon, and God gave them plenty of opportunities, sending them prophets, rising up early, sending them, telling them, and they just were like, eh, I'm not listening. And finally, God has to say, you know what? This breaks my heart. But I have to bring judgment. In fact, in 1 Peter, verse, chapter 4, verse 15, but actually starting in 17, it says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? The world needs to be changed, but they are not going to change if they see a lukewarm church. If they see people coming to church and just going through the motions and, you know, and, you know, lipping a few words of the songs, but yet no change really going on inside, no real desire to draw near to the Lord, but just kind of in a habit. You know, I've been coming here for years and I just, I, I come, and I'm not saying that's any of you, but I know that that happens. It happens. 
It happens in every fellowship in the world. Where people, they, they just come and they just kind of disengage. They're, they're not really there anymore for really drawing closer to the Lord. It just becomes a habit. It's what I do on Thursday. It's what I do on Sunday. I just come. My heart is closed before I get here. And you have to ask yourself the question, is that me? Is that me? I, I'm not assuming it's anybody here. I hope it isn't. But is it possible? Yes, it's even possible for the one standing behind the microphone. <laughs> right? It's true. We have to open our hearts. We have to get serious about the Lord. We have to let the word of God get into us. It's not just for somebody else. It's not a proof text for us to corner somebody else in their sin. No, let it first wound you terribly. Let it hit you right in the heart, right in the mind, and simultaneously, if possible, because it'll get the point across even quicker. Notice that Samuel grew in stature, verse 26. He grew in stature. Samuel, his walk with the Lord was, was unlike uh, Hophni and Phinehas's. I'm sure they were looking at him. Maybe they were even smirking at him and initially thinking, oh, look at this cute little guy. You know, you can see a cocky teenager or a 20-something looking at this little guy going, and already they're feeling convicted. Already they're going, wow, he's, he's really serious about this. I guess we should be too. Hmm. So they start getting convicted. I wonder what the tension was like between them. But notice, and I want to encourage you to never stop growing. It says he grew in stature. And I don't think that was just physically, certainly he was growing, but he was growing spiritually, outgrowing those who were in authority over him. And that's what God saw. See, men look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And as we're going to see in next week when we get into chapter 3, you're going to see God speaking to Eli. No, he's no longer speaking to Eli. He's speaking to the young kid. The high priest. I'm the high priest. You should be speaking to me. And God's like, I've been trying to for years. And you haven't listened. You've closed your heart. But there's a young man that I'm speaking to. He's in charge. I'm going to speak all my will to him. He's a man after my own heart, just like David. What a wonderful man Samuel must have been. But notice the order. Lord, he grew in stature before and in favor with the Lord and men. Grow in favor with the Lord first. If you grow in favor with the Lord, don't worry about your stature or your favor before men. If you can have favor of God, trust me, men are going to, you're going to be in favor of men. But if all you seek is the favor of men, you're not going to have favor with the Lord. That's called uh, being a, um, a, a, a man pleaser. A man pleaser. Paul said to Galatians, for now do I persuade men or God or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Don't seek to serve men. Don't seek to earn favor of men. Earn favor with God and everything else will fall into its place. It's sort of like the verse where it says, you know, uh, do all things unto the Lord. You know, give your heart completely to him. Seek the Lord with all your heart and all these other things will be added unto you, right? Seek the, the Lord. But notice, there a man came from a man of God came to Eli, and he said to him, "Thus says the Lord: Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when you were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house?" Notice that when we will not listen to the Lord Himself, He has to send an ambassador. There's only one way to do it. If we're not listening, if we've closed our heart, closed our ears, there's only one way to do it, 
And that's for God to raise up somebody else to come and tell us the hard facts. And what a hard fact it was. You know, as Eli's sons were to him, Eli's ears were also dull to the Lord. Eli's sons, they stopped listening to their dad. He's just, you know, he's not going to do anything. Oh, sons, it's not good that you do that. You know, stop it. Stop it. And they're like, big deal. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I want, dad. Besides, we're bigger than you. Can you see it? And Eli's ears were also dull. And he says, did I not? And then the prophet says to him, speaking from God's perspective, did I not choose you out of him, out of all the tribes of Israel, to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? He even provided them meat to eat from the sacrifices that the children of Israel would come. They would get a portion of that to feed their families. They were all taken care of. There was nothing that they lacked. And so verse 29, the prophet says, says, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and you honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? These men were hirelings. They were no longer doing it for the Lord. They were in it for the sex. They were in it for the food, and that's all they cared about. Sounds a lot like today. Eli was being partial to his sons. Rather than chastening them, he puts his sons above his love for God. That's always a bad thing to do. Bad thing to do. In Psalm 82, here is a question that Eli should have been willing to answer to the Lord. It says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. And here's the question that Eli should have asked God. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's God's question to Eli that he never answered? How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, i.e. your sons? There is no partiality with God's Roman, Roman tells us. And therefore the Lord of God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now, the Lord says, far be it for me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. You know, having a healthy fear of God is a good thing. He is. He's a gracious God. He's a loving, compassionate father. But don't ever get to the point where you get so close to him that you somehow think that you're kind of chubby, chubby like buddies. I think it's good to have that relationship with him that's intimate and deep, yes, but always remember that he is who he is, and there's no one like him, and he deserves our worship. He is not our equal. He will never be our equal. He will always be God, and we will spend an eternity, even in new bodies with new hearts, new minds, new everything, we will stand before him for an eternity, and we will still be dropping our jaws on the ground and and going, "I, I had no idea you were that awesome. I thought I knew this much, and you're filling the room. I can't even handle this. And I can almost hear the Spirit of God saying, it's a good thing you got a new body. Because if you showed up here in that decrepit thing on earth, you would have exploded a long time ago. Your head would have just popped. (laughs) You need a new body for heaven to be able to handle the glory and the beauty that awaits us be able to withstand the, the heat of his radiance, the glory, the, the white brightness of his purity, 
just feeding through everything. Just can you imagine that? It's just wow. Talk about love, man. You think you start thinking about that, and it just inspires you. It makes you want to dance. It makes you want to put on a linen ephod like David did, run down the street half naked but covered. Behold, the days are coming, verse 31, that I'll cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house. He's not talking about literally cutting off his arm, but cutting off the strength, cutting off the influence that these men had. You know, Eli, and and it says, behold, the days are coming, I already read that, I'm sorry, uh, that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house and there will not be an old man in your house. And Eli and his sons, in one day, all three of these men would die. In fact, we'll get to it when we get to um, 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to read about that, so I won't spoil that, even though you know the outcome. Notice verse 32, And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. I, actually, I have to spoil it. In, in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines come against the Israelites, and they take the Ark of the Covenant from them, and they destroy Shiloh. They completely destroy it. And in the battle, Hophni and Phinehas die. And then a man from the battlefield comes back to Shiloh before it's destroyed by the Philistines. He comes back and he tells Eli what had happened. That, By the way, Eli... Your two sons died, and also they took the Ark of the Covenant. And it says that when he heard about the Ark of the Covenant, that's when he fell back, and he broke his neck, and he died. He knew his sons had it coming. He even knew his own end was coming. And I think God, in his grace, he didn't tell him in advance, hey, you're going to die the same day. But your two sons are going to. And God, in his grace, kept his own life, telling him that his own life would end that day. But it did. But notice, you will see an enemy in my dwelling place. And we think that could be very well be certainly the, at least in the immediate at that time, could have been the Philistines coming against uh, Shiloh and completely destroying it. It could also be a prophecy. Many see this as a prophecy because we know that way down in history, several hundreds of years beyond this point, we'll see Antiochus Epiphanes after the reign of Alexander the Great in Greece, when Greece takes over the Medes and the Persians, and the Medes and the Persians had taken over the Babylonians, that around 169 BC, this ancestor of one of the Seleucid generals from Alexander the Great's army, he comes, his name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he comes and he desecrates the temple, slaughters a pig on their altar, sets up an altar of Zeus there in the holy place could be referring to him, or it could also be referring to the one that we're talking about on Sunday mornings right now, the Antichrist, who will defile the temple that is yet to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. We call it the Tribulation Temple. It could be that as well. But notice he says, But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age, and otherwise in the prime of their life, And now this is a sign to you that it shall come to pass that your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they shall die, both of them. And like I said, that was fulfilled in 1 Samuel chapter 4. You can read about that, read ahead. But notice in verse 35, this is very interesting. This is a really highlight of, uh, of the thing, and bear with me for just another maybe 10 minutes. 
But it says, then I will raise up, God says, for myself, a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed, underline that word. It's the second time you'll see it in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's personified in a person. We know who that is, Jesus. Before my anointed forever, that word anointed is Mashiach, Messiah, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this, that God would raise up for himself a faithful priest, because Eli wasn't a faithful priest, but God says, now that this is going to come to pass, I'm going to raise up for myself a faithful priest, a faithful priest. And who could he be talking about? I believe he was speaking of a priest that would, that would be born not too long after this. His name would be Zadok. He would be another Levite. And Zadok, the priest, was the priest that came after Eli. He was also of the same lineage, not only from Levi, but remember there was uh, three different uh, brothers of, of, of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And Kohath was the same tribe that Samuel was born in. And just incidentally, Zadok is from this same line of the Kohathites. And these are the same line that Moses and Aaron came from as well. These were the high priests and so Zadok was a faithful man. And notice, I believe that's who he's talking about here in this 35th verse, this faithful priest, because we see it. Uh, I'm just going to give you some verses to write down, and you can look this up. It's very uh, fascinating to me. Uh, in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 6, verses 31 through 38, and it, it really just kind of shows you that uh, it proves to you that Samuel was a Kohathite. He was of this line. And then also Zadok, he was of the Kohathites as well. And you can read about that in the same chapter, 1 Chronicles chapter 6. If you look at the first eight verses, you'll see that, that Zadok was of, of that same lineage. And why is this important? It is important because in David, when, he, when David became king, uh, let's read 2 Samuel. Let me just read this to you. You can write the reference down. 2 Samuel 15 beginning in verse 24. And this was the time when, remember, that Absalom had, uh, was going to come against and overthrow his father. There was going to be a coup, and Absalom was going to... He came into Jerusalem, and this is before he died. And so his father, you know, David, being an old man at this time, decides, you know what, I'm just going to leave. And so he... I can see it in my mind's eye, even today. He, he leaves the temple... And he goes down through the Kidron Valley, and he starts walking up toward the Mount of Olives on the east side of that. And it says, and there was Zadok also. So now they're, they're leaving Jerusalem, right? He, he knows his son Absalom has got a bunch of guys, and he's like, you know what? I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to let him have it. Lord, if it's your will for me to come back, great. If not, then, you know, David at the time is a broken man, right? Because he's already been, he had the sin with Bathsheba. He's killed Uriah. He's, he's a different man, but he's also a man of faith still. And he's like, you know what, Lord? He trusted in the Lord. His son's going to come and overthrow him. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to get out and let him have it. He's young. He's full of energy. Have at it. <laughs> if the Lord's in it, I'll be back. If not, I, I, I was blessed while I was alive. That was David's heart, Right. It says, Zadok also and all the Levites with him, they, they went with him. They were going to leave Jerusalem bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. Notice the faithfulness of this man, and we'll see why this is so important in just a second. So Zadok, uh, and this is who I believe that um, this prophecy was talking about here, that a, a priest will rise up. 
It says that, um, and they sat down the ark of, the, uh, of God, and Abiathar went up, against, uh, went up until all the people had finished crossing over the city. And then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of the covenant, go back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to me. The king also said to Zadok, and I love this, what, the, what David says to Zadok, this faithful priest. He says, are you not a seer? Aren't you important to the, to the church back in Jerusalem, you know, to the people? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Haimez, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. And this man was with David. He was with him. He was faithful to the Lord. He was faithful to the Lord. And even after David had died, it says that when Solomon came into power, he looked at Zadok and he, he, he made him the high priest and he, he dismissed his, his brother Abiathar. And there's, there's a lot to this and I won't bore you with it. I mean, it's good if we had time, but he chose Zadok because Zadok was always with David. Abiathar went with uh, Absalom and got caught up into that, um, that confusion and that overthrow. But Zadok stayed true to David. He stayed true to what God had called him to do. And why is this a big deal anyway? Turn with me and we'll end here. Um, we just got one more verse after this. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 44. This is really wonderful, folks, because you're going to see the faithfulness of God through all of the eons of time. Think about it. You know, here it is. That there hasn't even been a king in Israel yet, and Eli dies and his sons, and God is telling um, that, that there will arise a faithful priest after Eli who will do all of my will. He's basically going to be a, a wonderful example. And God says, I'm going to bless him. I'm going to use him. And certainly he used him, you know, in David and Solomon's ministry, didn't he? He used him during that time. And look all the way. Now, Zadok physically dies at some point. But now let's look in Ezekiel 44 because it talks about the millennial reign of Christ. Notice who comes back. This is interesting. Verse 10, let's pick it up. And the Levites, remember, this is a portion of Ezekiel where he's, de he's describing the millennial temple. This is the temple that's going to be built after Jesus comes back to the earth physically, after his second coming. We come back with him. The Antichrist is destroyed, the false prophet, the devil is cast into the abuso, and we live on this earth for a thousand years with Jesus. That temple that he builds is laid out in very specific detail in chapters 40 through 44 of Ezekiel. The, temp the dimensions of this temple have never been built ever. It's huge, more than anything we've ever seen in history. It dwarfs it, any other temple they've made. And he also describes the, the, who's going to be doing what and when. And notice, and the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offerings and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister. Notice the pronouns here. Who are these guys who went far from the ministry? 
They're priests, but they didn't really follow the Lord completely. These men are still, by God's grace, going to be allowed. That lineage is going to be able to serve God, but they're going to serve the people. They're going to serve their needs and the things that they come to worship. And just keep, keep an eye on those pronouns here, because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore, I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord, that they shall bear their iniquity, and they shall not come near me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all the things that are done in it. But notice verse 15, the mood changes, but the priests, the Levites, notice, underline this, the sons of Zadok. This goes right back to this promise that we just read in 1 Samuel where God says to them, you know, that I will raise up a priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed. Who's the anointed? Jesus Christ. Who's going to be there in that millennial reign? Jesus Christ. These men are going to be there, the sons of Zadok. And notice what they get to do. Bear with me here. We're almost finished. Thanks for your patience. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me, notice, to me, to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to who? To the people? No, to me. And they shall keep charge, and it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them. Uh, Let's go. um, You can read down the rest of it, but let's look down at uh, verse 22 at the same chapter there. It says, They shall not take as wife uh, a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or widows of priests. Notice, and I love this. This is a great verse. Circle it, underline it. And they shall teach my people, these sons of Zadok, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the holy and the unholy, and cause them to discern between the clean and the unclean. This is what they get. This is what they are rewarded for in the millennial kingdom. I don't know about you. That may not mean like a big deal to you, but I bet it's going to be a big deal then when those priests... Now, God, you know, he doesn't impute sin upon other people that you've committed, right? But he has the right to say, this line and this line are two different, and I'm going to choose, because of your background, you're still going to get to serve in the temple. And you know what? I bet those guys are going to be like, thank you so much. <laughs> I am thrilled to death that at least I get to do that. I think that's going to be the attitude. But then these others, these priests of Zadok, that lineage... They are going to serve the Lord. They're going to minister to him, and it's going to be a completely different thing. They get the privilege of being closest to him because of their obedience back way back when, way back when they were serving David and Solomon and doing the right thing, staying loyal to David because he was the king. They knew that, and they were faithful. They were loyal. They did the right things. And by the way, Eli didn't come from the same line of Zadok. He came from the, 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 the Levites, certainly, but he was from the family. Remember how I said uh, Aaron had four sons? Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar? Well, Eleazar was, after uh, Nadab and Abihu died, Eleazar was the next priest. 
And from his lineage came Zadok, and from the lineage of Ithamar came Abiathar, or Eli, and then Abiathar. And that's how you can understand that lineage over here served the people, but Eleazar through the line of Zadok, they are the ones who served the Lord. Big difference, and they taught the people to know the difference between the holy and the unholy and the profane and the, and the, and the clean. I don't know about you, but that's, that's awesome. So is it important to remain faithful? Absolutely. Be faithful to God. And let's finish this last verse. Then, uh, let me see. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of bread and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions for that I may eat a piece of bread. And, and so faithfulness pays off. That's really the bottom line here. Faithfulness pays off. And you young people, listen. Be faithful whenever everyone around you is being unfaithful. And that's good news for us even as adults. Be faithful in an unfaithful world. Be bold and willing to go against the tide, against the cultural norms. It's better to honor God than to honor man. It's better to obey the Lord than to obey your friends and the voice of the world. In the end, just like the sons of Zadok, you'll be rewarded for your faithfulness, even though it is difficult right now. See, we all think, we think short-sightedly, and we pay the price later. Be faithful now, even though it hurts, even though it kind of limits you. It feels like you're kind of confined. Obey the Lord now and the rewards. This is true in finances. It's true in everything. If you deny yourself now, you're going to reap something better down the road. But if you're the type of person who spends everything, their very last cent, every paycheck they get, you're not going to have anything. There's so much wisdom in this whole thing about being faithful right where you're at. Be faithful right now. Be purposeful. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night, and we just pray that, God, we would, Lord, like Zadok, Lord, we wouldn't get used to uh, doing things for the sake of doing things. Lord, help us to always serve you with a right heart, and Lord, change us. Help us to be sober in the days we live in, and help us to, uh, to put away sin, Father, from our lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you're always working. You're good to us. You're so faithful. Get us home safely tonight, Lord, and bless us, every single one of us, tomorrow as we go our separate ways. Bless every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.